Hey there, and welcome to Upfront, a podcast that features conversations with Connecticut-based top performers who represent the very best in their field and how they are making an impact in their industry and here at home in Connecticut. Thanks for listening. Hello, hello, and welcome to Upfront. I'm Derek Beer. Thank you for joining us. And just as the intro says, we're interested in learning more about some of Connecticut's top performers who represent the very best in their field and how they achieved success. And above all else, we want to know the good, bad, and the ugly, the challenges, triumphs, tough choices they've made, and so much more. And that's just what we're going to get into on this episode. Our guest on the show this month is Richard Rosenthal, and Richard is the founder and president of Max Restaurant Group, which includes 10 successful restaurants here in Connecticut, as well as Massachusetts and Florida. I'm sure you've heard of them and probably have eaten at them. Max Catering and Events, a wine selection under the Max Family Cuvée label, Max's Chef to Farm Summer Dinner Series at Rosedale Farms in Simsbury, as well as a huge community relations program under the Max Community Outreach brand. We're going to get into all of that on this episode and learn from Richard about his start and where he's going today. I think I think I got all of that, Richard. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Derek. It's a pleasure to be with you. I always start out with this question so we can kind of get a mental picture. Where are you at this very moment in time? At this moment, you mean physically, or or do you mean mentally? <laughs> Let's say physically. We'll get into the men- mentally stuff later. Okay, great. Physically, I'm in my uh, home office in Palm Beach Gardens, Florida. Um, this time of year, I, I tend to spend about half my time down here um, taking care of our um, restaurant down here, which is called the Cooper. Uh, it's the only one named that, rather than Max. So. Um, for the cold months of uh, Connecticut, I, I spend about half down here, as I said. So you split the time between Florida and Connecticut, and and where did where did you grow up? I grew up in uh, West Hartford, Connecticut. I know what West Hartford is like. Um, it's changed considerably. Can you describe what life growing up there was like when you, when you did? What was it like? Well, gro- you know, gro- growing up in West Hartford in the sixties, um, sixties and seventies, I guess was uh, much different than we know it today. Um, you know, it was, um, you know, we, we used to refer to it as Mayberry, you know, like uh, on uh, one of those television shows. Um, you know, it was your typical, um, you know, it was a somewhat upscale suburb, you know. Um, we never saw it that way, but, you know, the kids from other towns, when you played sports, you know, in high school, they always looked at West Hartford as being a little bit of a, uh, a privileged town, and, you know, to some extent it was. But it was really a, it was a great place to to grow up, you know. Lots of sidewalks, a lot of you know good schools, good sports programs, and uh, you know the dining scene as you know we know it now in West Hartford, which has I can't even guess how many uh, restaurants there are, but I would say it's over thirty. You know, right in the center itself, there was two or three restaurants in the center, and it was um, there was an old restaurant. Uh, that I used to go with my mother once in a while when my father was working at night during taxis and he was a CPA. We would go to the Edelweiss, which was in the middle of town, pretty much where um, where Treva is now. Uh, there was a there was a there was a uh, Asian restaurant and it was called um, South Seas. It was kind of it was a Polynesian restaurant and that's where uh, 
Max's Oyster Bar is. And there was another one across the street. Um, and uh, where Bartaco is now, that restaurant was called the uh, Maple Hill. And that was, um, we always joked, that's where old ladies went and you could get, you know, a very mundane meal. And But they were famous for pies. Mm-hmm. And so my recollection, that the, that's the only three restaurants I could think of that were in West Harvard Center. You know, none of them that had anything remotely like with a nightlife or bar scene or anything like that. Yeah, I always say West Hartford Center has changed quite a bit, um, even from when I first moved to the Hartford area. Um, it, it's changed within the last 20 years. It's become, it's become the place to be. Yeah. Growing up in West Hartford, are any brothers or sisters? I have, I have two older brothers. Okay. Uh, one, one was six, or I should say was, they're still alive. One is six years older and one was is eight years older. So I kind of grew up as... Um, you know, by the time I was in junior high school, which you know we call middle school today, my brothers were both out of the house. So I kind of grew up, you know, my recollection is almost being an only child other than, you know, vacations and, you know, spring breaks and, you know, et cetera. So I kind of grew up with, uh, and my parents were a little on the older side. So I kind of was ignored pretty much as a kid. <laughs> I was going to say, everybody paved the path for you, right? <laughs> exactly. They, well, you know, they were very well behaved, you know, and they, uh, they didn't cause much trouble. So I was very well trusted, you know, so I was left alone for, you know, my parents might go on vacation when I was in high school and leave me alone for a week or two, which, which resulted in me having a vacation. Right, right. What did your parents do for work? What, what kind of, um, you know, line of, lines of work were they in? Yeah, my dad, my dad was a CPA. It was involved with a uh, you know very nice little accounting firm, which over the years grew to a very big firm. And my mom was a you know pretty much a stay-at-home mom who uh, was involved with a lot of charitable things and was very busy. I mean, she worked. It seemed like a full-time job to me. She was always our kitchen table was filled with um, you know paperwork from her different organizations. You know, mostly Jewish type things like Hadassah and the Temple and um, Jewish Federation. So it was like she was a hardworking woman. You know, she didn't play. Uh, she she wrote, she developed rheumatoid arthritis in her, I guess, in her middle 30s. So physically, she wasn't very active as far as, you know, she didn't play tennis or golf or anything like that. And her hobbies were doing charity work. And she kind of was a full-time, you know, you know, treasurer for this, for, for an organization or membership committee or whatever she was always doing something and, and what kind of values would you say your parents instilled in you when you were younger that has helped that you still carry with you today well you know it's interesting i've raised three daughters who are now you know from 26 to 30 and i feel like i gave a lot of speeches on values and you know tried to add some wisdom there mm -hmm. my parents didn't they kind of did it more by example yep growing up in the 60s and 70s your parents weren't, they weren't your friends. They were your, they were just your parents. And, you know, we didn't do a lot of fun things together necessarily, but the guidance you got from, that you received from that generation was different. You know, it was, it was really more by example. You know, one of my, um, I'll never forget this example. My father was a very, very honest guy and, and my mother also. And I just remember my dad, um, we went to a local drugstore to, it's called Maxwell's. It was at Bishop's Corner, and uh, no relation to us 
<laughs> us Maxes. Yep. But she, um, I remember we, you know, he went and bought something. I don't recall what it was. And we walked out and we we're in the parking lot. And he realized that the cashier at the drugstore gave him an extra $10 in his change. Mm. And he says, oh, I got to go back in. He gave me, or he or she gave me $10 extra. And I said, Dad, why would you do that? It was their mistake. You know, I'm, uh, I'm probably 10 or 12 years old, something like that. And I couldn't imagine why he would bring the money back. Right. And he brought the money back and he made it clear to me that wasn't his money. It was the store's money. And the, the girl who's working the cashier might be responsible for it. But more importantly, it was the store's money. You know, we buy things there, we get our change, and it should be the right change. So you just, you know, it's a, it was a very simple experience, but it, it just stuck with me forever about just being honest. And, you know, when, you, when you're in a store or you're in a restaurant and you order a bottle of wine, and if it didn't make the, if it didn't make the check by some unfortunate reason, I've always believed, you know, you tell the, you tell the person, the waitress or the server or the bartender, hey, you forgot to put this on the check. And I've just kind of lived that way. I think honesty is, I mean, it's an old proverb, you know, honesty is the best policy. Yep. But I've always felt, I'm not very spiritual, but I do believe that there's a little, a little karma there. You know, you do the right thing and the right thing kind of happens to you. Absolutely. What a great story. How, how was food a part of your childhood? Were these, these big family dinners that took place or was it just kind of food? Food was just sort of, you know, breakfast, lunch, dinner. Or was there a big celebration around food? No, no, we were, you know, my mother was a terrific cook. Mm. Um, and I would say mostly, you know, kind of traditional Jewish food. But she did a lot of things that weren't. And um, and my friends, you know, today find it surprising some of the things she made. You know, things like, you know, like veal scallopini. And she'd make uh, baked stuffed shrimp or stuffed clams or uh, baked stuffed lobsters. Things like that that were, you know, clearly not Jewish traditional Jewish food, though a lot of Jewish people like those things that don't keep kosher. But food was always a part of it. You know, family dinners were always a big thing. You know, uh, we grew up with, we always got together Friday evening for dinner, uh, which is a traditional Jewish time to have dinner. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, the, in the holidays, of course, you know, the Jewish holidays and then the, uh, the obvious Thanksgiving and other things like that. So food was a part and, you know, dining out was, I would say a small part of growing up, nothing like today, you know, we would eat out for special occasions, you know, birthdays and things like that. But, you know, it was, I don't know, you know, I, I, I'm guessing we went out once a month compared to, you know, today's society that goes out two to three times a week. Yeah, it's interesting. I think back to even my parents, it's like going out to dinner was a special occasion for things you mentioned, either anniversary or a birthday or something. But every, you know... Everything was at home, and then maybe, you know, today, it's like you go out once or twice a week sometimes. Hopefully more. Yeah. <laughs> Derek, we think people should eat out every night. Right, exactly. Growing up in West Hartford, um, did you did you play any kind of sports when you were younger? Yeah, I was a um, – I, I played a lot of sports, but the two sports that I was most involved with was soccer. I played that, you know, from between high school and, uh, you know, junior high school. Mm -hmm. And I was um, – I would say I was okay. I wasn't, a, you know, I wasn't a gifted athlete. I was, I was actually good at all sports, and the only sport I really excelled with uh, was tennis as a kid, mm. and played tennis in high school and college. Um, and you know, w w wasn't a great tennis player, but you know, 
Uh, that was that was my best sport, and it was I was very very passionate about that as a as a kid. You know, love going to see live tennis at you know New York. There used to be a tournament in Boston at the Longwood Cricket Club. I would go there every year, mm-hmm. and um, you know I knew all the players. Right, but you know back then the, the two the two uh, countries that produce all the tennis players or the majority of them were the United States and Australia. Yep, and you know the Australians were very you know. There's something very romantic about the Australian tennis players, you know, the accents and their, you know, the the talent mostly. But, you know, they were it was kind of glamorous athletes. Very nice. And did you want to be a tennis player? Was that your childhood dream or, or what did you want to be when you grew yeah, up? Yeah, it was. And I, and I actually uh, my early jobs as a kid, you know, once I turned 16, there are two jobs I kind of had at the same time was working at a tennis club, in uh, an indoor tennis club in Bluefield. Mm-hmm. And I worked at several restaurants and, um, and worked, as, worked as an assistant tennis pro when I was uh, kind of high school and college as I was getting a little better and a little, you know, a little more mature where you could get a job like that. But I, I don't think I ever envisioned myself as doing it as a career, but it was a great, um, it was, you know, it was a great introduction. And what was really special about it looking back was I got to meet a lot of people in that were um, had some affluence working at tennis clubs, and later when I um, ended, ended up being in the restaurant business, a lot of those people remembered me from there, and um, I think patronized my first restaurant because of that. Very nice. I always think of Caddyshack, right? All the all the people that came through. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and you know, and, and you know, working at a, a country club back then, you know. There was a lot of memories similar to Caddyshack. It was it was a fun time. Very nice. And it was kind of out of my, you know, something I didn't grow up with with country clubs. So working at a country club was was very exciting. Much like the restaurant business was. You know, working in a restaurant. Those are two things that, you know, for me, they were both jobs were very glamorous jobs. Yeah, the, you know, there is something about that. I remember when I worked in the restaurant and it's like you mentioned where you work and people would be impressed. You know, they'd be like, oh, wow, you work there. That's great. I also read that you you worked at McDonald's. Was that one of your early restaurant experiences? McDonald's was my very first job, actually. Mm-hmm. When I turned 16, um, for some reason, not that I really needed money, but I kind of felt like I needed money. Yep. You know, I wanted, I guess I wanted to buy a pizza or something, you know. Um, so I rushed out and got the first job I could get at McDonald's. And, um, you know, I think I... Pretty much, you know, this is a long time ago now. This is 19, uh, I don't know, probably 1974 or something like that. And, um, yeah, I worked at McDonald's probably for about three or four weeks. And the problem was they kept sending me home. You know, they were very efficient about their, you know, labor dollars. And that was pretty much the low man on the totem pole. So when, you know, got, when it, you know, this slowed down a little bit, they would send you home. So I found I was working, you know, for, I planned for to work for the evening and you'd go home after like two or three hours. Mm. So I later got a job at um, this restaurant at Bishop's Corner called the Steak Club, which is one of probably the other few restaurants in town at the time. And that was one of those steak and salad places, you know, salad bar with um, steaks and, you know, prime rib and stuffed shrimp, that kind of place. And that was a that was a fun, exciting job for a, a teenager. You know, I was a, uh, I worked as a busboy there, and a busboy there took care of the salad bar, you know, cleaned and set tables. But 
the people that worked there, who was, you know, was again from like another world. And um, one, of, one of my fond memories was on, on the busy nights, there was always a, um, a pool to guess how many dinners they would do. Mm. And uh, Maria, the hostess, she would, um, you know, they'd have uh, the back of a placemat, they'd take everyone's name, everyone would put up, it was probably a dollar or something like that, would put it to the pool and you'd guess how many covers or dinners you do for the evening. And the winner would get all the, the money. So, that, you know, it's little things like that. And it had a big bar, this restaurant had a very large bar with a, um, which was kind of the divorcee crowd in West Hartford. So, you know, they'd have um, a live band and, you know, the cocktails and cigarettes and dancing. And so it was a fun place to work. You know, as the evening went on, you know, all the excitement would start in there. And it was, uh, you know, pretty much a pickup bar, I guess, for the uh, divorcee crowd. When I was in the um, restaurant business, my my big exciting moment was the chef would say, hey, what do you what do you want for lunch? Anything you want me to make you, I'll, I'll make it for you. So that, that was pretty cool. And the other thing was, you know, certain guests, and I don't know why, but they, they came in through the kitchen, right? They came, they didn't go through the front door. They came in through the kitchen, said hi to everybody, and then they made their way to the table. So that's a great visual. Yeah, as you say, another world. So, okay, so you're, you you grew up in West Hartford. You worked at the country club and and in and, and restaurants, um, but you you went off to college. You went to um, you, you went to Bentley. I want oh I want to tell you another uh, quick um, sure. another job sure. Um, so I was working at that state club restaurant. It was called the State Club, and my dad, the accountant that I mentioned earlier, Alfred, had a client that was opening a restaurant in Simsbury. And um, he, he said to me, uh, hey, Richie, as he called me, he said, hey, these two nutty guys are opening this restaurant. They're converting an old train station into a, a restaurant. And uh, they're nice guys. I want to go see how they're doing. You know? And they were, so we drove out there on a, like, it seems like it was Saturday afternoon. Mm -hmm. And the two guys that owned it, Mitch and uh, Walt, who were, it wasn't even open yet, they were digging out the basement to create a, a lounge. And they were converting this, you know, restaurant into a, um, or, I'm sorry, this train station into a restaurant, which is now, um, it was called the One Way Fair, and it was there for 30 plus years, and it's most recently been the uh, Plan B. Okay. Um, in Simsbury, if you're familiar with it. Yep. And so I met the guys, and you know, um, I think my father said to uh, Mitch, he says, "Hey, my son here uh, works in restaurants." And they were, like I said, they weren't open yet. And they kind of said, hey, if you ever want a job, come out here. So living in West Hartford, Simsbury seemed like it was about an hour's ride. So um, one thing led to another. That summer, I ended up applying for a job with Mitch. And I get a job in the kitchen. So I'd always worked in the front of the house, you know, doing the busboy, that kind of stuff. So I became a position, which was, believe it or not, the, the position name was called a, called a schlep. Okay. <laughs> and a schlep was really a dishwasher. And you would, you know, um, you, you'd wash dishes, pots and pans, et cetera. And you would you'd do a little bit of cooking and you'd run to the walk-in to get them some more hamburgers or some more roast beef or whatever they needed. But the actual job title was called a schlep, which was kind of funny because that's a, you know, a, Jew, a Yiddish term, schlep. And these people I worked with, I don't think had ever met a Jewish person in their lives. And I don't think they even knew it was a Jewish term. But it was clearly, you know, there was a, you know, the schedule itself would, you know, would say, you know, light cook, and then there'd be a, lot, a light, an item for schlep. And that was me. <laughs> and that was, you know, and that was just a fun job. You know, you experienced so many different 
cultural things and um you know it was a time when you know out drinking and drugs were very uh prevalent in the restaurants you know it wasn't as uh as business-like as it is today absolutely so uh i learned a lot out there in simsbury back then <laughs> very nice and Okay, so you, you've had these restaurant jobs. You grew up in West Hartford. High school's over. Um, you go off to Bentley College. But what did you study there? Did you go for restaurant management? Or what was your education like? Um, well, my education was uh, not particularly successful. Though I, I did graduate, but um, there was a lot of um, there was a lot more playing playtime than work time for me in uh, college. Okay. But... Uh, ben, ben was a fabulous school, and it was um, it was interesting because it was not a very difficult school to get into back then, and I think today it is. But uh, it was a great it was a great education. The little I got, and it was a very difficult school to stay in. It was it was easy to get in, but it wasn't. You know, the curriculum was there wasn't much fluff. It was all business. Mm-hmm. It was a business degree, and I studied marketing management, which is you know probably one of the easier majors there because most of the students were. Uh, accounting majors, which was, you know, very, for me, very difficult. And for most people that weren't really tuned into that. So, you know, I studied, you know, so I went there for uh, four years. And uh, after I graduated with my, you know, whatever my grade point average, my uh, 2.2 or something like that, I wasn't exactly a hot commodity in the um, recruiting world. Um, so after college, I was kind of back in the restaurant business, working back at One Way Fair, working there for the you know summer, which ended up being a year or two. And I kind of came to the conclusion I really liked restaurants. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I never thought of it prior to that as a career. I just thought of it, it was a, it was a place to make money. It was a fun place to work. I enjoyed the excitement. The um, you know the restaurant business always felt like show business to me. And um, I think you referred to that a little bit. There was, you know, there was, there was always an excitement of the type of people that came in, the people that worked there, et cetera. And um, I decided I wanted to go to culinary school. And it was a choice partially made because I couldn't think of anything else I knew how to do. Um, and going back to the tennis thing, I probably wasn't a good enough tennis player to, to do anything with that other than, you know, work at a club or something like that. So um, I ended up going to culinary school. Um, that must have been like 1982 or three, something right around then. Mm-hmm. And when I went there, it was like I found my place. It was like for the first time in my life, I was a straight A student and top of the class. Where you know I went through high school and college as the guy that you know just got by by lying, cheating, stealing, doing whatever he could do to get through school, except work. Mm. But when I got to culinary school, it was like a, it was a totally different experience. I loved every minute of it. I loved the cooking. I loved the management classes. I loved the, the recipes, things. I loved the instructors. It was the first time I liked my teachers. It was just a totally different, you know, experience for me. And I excelled and I was, you know, uh, one of the better people in the class. And I did get some award for being something. I don't know what it was, but, you know. Val Victoria in my class of, of, of 18. <laughs> it's interesting you say that because it's like, it's almost like you were made for it. As soon as you got there, you probably just felt this like, Hey, this is, this is where I belong. Right. So that, that, that's a great story. 
And it was kind of the first time I was better than everyone at school. Mm. Like all of a sudden I'm in school, you know, these, and, and it, you know, it was a, it was interesting mix of people. It was a lot of people that went to this particular culinary school, which was called the New York restaurant school it was in Manhattan. It was a fairly small school and it was kind of an avant-garde. Um, it was a division of the new school, which was kind of a, I, I don't know much about the new school, but this was a division that was always well regarded as a kind of a higher education place. And for some reason, you know, all of a sudden I was like, I was the good student. And it became more than just the classroom. The whole city became my, became my classroom. You know, you know, and the, the dining scene in New York at that time was totally evolving. It was going from the traditional old school French, um, you know, the, the old guard Italian restaurants where this, there was, a, I guess, an evolution of what they were calling New American Cuisine, yep. which was kind of taking, um, I mean, it's kind of what you see today in most restaurants that are American, but it was, it was really about the ingredients. It was about the almost simplifying, but focusing on, on the quality of ingredients and taking different ethnic influences and creating what is America in general in a kind of American cuisine. And uh, I was just in love with it. And I would go to, you know, an activity for me was going to restaurants, but I couldn't afford to eat in a restaurant, really. For me, it was just going to a restaurant and it might be looking at the menu in the window. It might be walking in and just kind of seeing what the restaurant looked like. And, you know, and there was a change in decor, you know, it wasn't, the restaurants weren't all stuffy, you know, upholstered, carpeted, you know, the, the looks that we see today were just starting and restaurants were, um, you know, it was, it was a new wave of restaurants, you know, you had a new wave of, you know, music at the time and there was a totally different outlook on what fine dining was going to be. And I was just a, I was a student sucking it up like, you know, like a straw, Yeah. you know, so a, a weekend activity for me or when I wasn't in school or working, I was I would go see restaurants. Yep. It was the you know, it was the menu, it was the architecture, it was the the vibe, and you know, often it was as simple as just seeing it. As I said. Okay, so now you're in New York and you're working in the restaurant industry down there. Um, what what brought you back to Hartford? Um, was was Max on Main your first restaurant here in Connecticut? Yes, it was, and that was uh, you no. Know, uh, Four o'clock on November fourteenth, nineteen eighty-six, we opened the doors. And um, okay, oh, b- before I came to Hartford, though, I'd gone to Newport, Rhode Island. I'd uh, worked in the city cooking um, for about three years, and I worked in uh, two or three different kitchens, and really got to. Um, first of all, I was making a lot of money. I was making, I think, for a guy with two degrees, if you want to call it culinary degree. I think I was making six seventy-five an hour, something like that. So I was rolling a dough, as you can imagine. <laughs> and uh, but I was learning, and I really looked at this. You know, all my friends that went to business school and other colleges, you know, they went to high school, where you know they were getting good jobs, they were buying cars, they were they were had nice apartments in you know wherever they live, Boston, New York, whatever. And I'm you know, I have like two pairs of black jeans and uh, and a, a sweatshirt, and I'm roaming around New York City. So um, the guy that I worked for, the things circle around, the guy that owned the one-way fare, Mitch, 
that I mentioned earlier, was opening a restaurant in Newport, Rhode Island. And I was the only guy he knew that ever left Connecticut. <laughs> so he begged me to come work um, at this place called the Main Brace. And I went there as a, um, I went there as a manager, really his, you know, his only manager and went there and spent a couple of years there and then kind of circled back to Hartford. This is the moment where I, I, I want to know, okay, you're working in all these restaurants, but when did you have the moment that, okay, I want to open my own? Oh, that moment, that moment was before I went to New York. Mm. My, when I went to New York, I had one goal in mind. It wasn't to learn how to cook. It was to learn how to open a restaurant. And the cooking part was the, you know, to me, it was the foundation that I felt was so important. If, and I said, if I, I said to myself, if I'm going to open a restaurant, I need to know how to cook. Yep. And I loved cooking prior to that. You know, when I told you about working as a schlep in the kitchen, you know, I was, again, I was a sponge back then. You know, the guy that made omelets, I wanted to learn how to make an omelet, mm -hmm. you know, grilling hamburgers or sauteing fish. The things they did in this, which was relatively a simple restaurant, but the food was very good. And they were very serious about the food being, you know, it wasn't gourmet food by any standards, but it was good quality and tasty food. So when I decided to go to culinary school in New York, I was really, I had one goal in mind, and that was to come back to Hartford and open a restaurant. To me, that's amazing because some people who would want to open a restaurant would just say, okay, I've got the money. I'm just going to open a restaurant. I don't need to know how to cook, but you did your homework, so to speak. Well, I didn't have the money. So so how did you, with no money, how did you open Max on Main? Well, I went, um, so when I, when I came back from Newport, I'll circle back to Hartford. Yep. I came back to Newport and, uh, I mean, back to Hartford. And the reason I came back to Hartford uh, was Hartford was written up in one of the magazines, uh, I don't remember if it was Newsweek or one of those, as one of the top cities in the country to move to. Mm. And I said, it's time. I got to go back to Hartford to open my restaurant. So I went back, and a guy from Newport um, who I worked with, I kind of brought him along, and we uh, opened Max on Main together. And I had borrowed some, he had a little bit of money. I brought a little money from my mother, yep. not my father. Um, not because he wouldn't have, but my mother had inherited a little bit of money from her, her father, which was my grandfather, Max, which gets you to where you're probably going. How do we get the name Max? Right. I don't even so, have to ask now. So my mother uh, loaned me um, $100,000, which she had sold a building that his, he was in the candy business. He owned a business called Capital Candy with another partner. Okay. And he had passed away, and my uncle, who was working, unfortunately, had passed away. And at some point, the building was sold, and the business was sold also. And I think the only part my mother owned was a portion of the real estate, which was on Weathersfield Avenue, um, you know, in the South End. Mm -hmm. So she had this money, and she believed in, you know, her little son, Richie, and she was willing. And when I say my father did loan her, my father was obviously willing also. So... Um, we had this uh, $100,000, and I borrowed another 200000 I think, from Connecticut National Bank, which hasn't existed for years. Yeah. And I, I remember going to see a banker with my father, and my father being an accountant had some connections, you know, with bankers and relationships. 
And believe it or not, at that point, they would loan me a couple hundred thousand dollars based on the hundred I was putting in. Now, 300000 back then, that you we could build a pretty nice restaurant. Today, we, we wouldn't even get our furniture, probably. Right, right. Where, where was Max on Main exactly? Max on Main was at 205 Main Street, which is in uh, the neighborhood, which is not often referred to as South Green area, which is between, we were between Buckingham and Park Street. Okay. And if you know where, if you know where um, Peppercorn's Grill is, yep. we were about a block south of that. Yeah, I mean, now you're in the heart of the city with, with Max downtown. So Max on Main, you move it downtown. Tell, tell me that story. How does, how does that all come together? So what happened was we opened in Main Street, and that was, like I said, 1986. And we were, um, if I don't pat myself on the back, you know, no one else will sometimes. The restaurant we opened was a, it was a gem. It was a about 85 seats, including bar seats. It was in a building that had been renovated by this guy, David Case, who I kind of befriended and he wanted you know me in the space. And we created a restaurant that was really this hip bistro. And we had, it was actually named Max on Main, a city bistro. And when we had that on our sign and on our logo, I can't tell you how many customers would come into the restaurant and they'd go, They'd say, what's a bistro? Mm. So when you talk about this was the dark ages of Connecticut restaurants, people didn't know the term bistro. Right. You know, they didn't even know what it meant. Um, other than people that may have gone to France or whatever. So this restaurant was, was you know, we had hardwood floors. We had, you know, servers were wearing long white aprons and tennis shoes and you know a, st- a little striped shirt and a tie and we, we we had a look and feeling you know much like i had seen in new york and i when i visited california it had a very california kind of san francisco vibe to it which wasn't planned necessarily but you know after visiting those restaurants out there that there was the the west coast was kind of the cutting edge for the culinary scene in new york back then but california had this kind of relaxed vibe that though i never coined to California cuisine. That's kind of what I was, the vibe I was going for. It, it really took off like a restaurant has never, that I've never seen take off before. Um, we just kind of had the, we pushed the right buttons at the right time. You know, the, 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 the atmosphere had a casualness. The food had uh, a seriousness to it as far as the, the quality and the, the, you know, menu items that no one had ever seen. There was nothing on the menu that was ever on anyone else's menu in the world exactly like it you know we created our own dishes and it was all about freshness and quality and it was also at a price point that wasn't very intimidating Mm. you know it wasn't like going to a fancy french restaurant it wasn't like going to an expensive steakhouse you know we had we had steak on the menu and we had seafood and pasta and we made these uh pizzas that we called stone pies yep and um so we kind of created a, at least in Hartford, uh, like a little niche that people didn't, they hadn't seen before, but they responded uh, tremendous. They, you know, they really responded to it. We put, we really gave them the mousetrap. They didn't know they were looking for, but they were looking for it. And it caught on. It took like about seven days before it caught on. And once it caught on, there was like no looking back. Mm. 
Yeah, it's almost like the Steve Jobs story, right? Like, I think one of his famous quotes was like, people don't know what they want until you give it to them. I've said that many times, you know, you know, you always want to get feedback from people what they want in your restaurant or if you're in the design world and you want that, you, you want to hear their input, yeah. but then it's up to us to give them something they didn't know they wanted. Are you a person who's up at the crack of dawn or what, what time do you get up? I'm usually up probably um, out of bed, you know, somewhere around 6.37 typically. And, um, you know, I used to be, you know, as I've aged and as I, my job has changed a little, you know, in the, you know, my early days at the restaurant, I'm there till one o'clock, two o'clock, three o'clock every night of the week. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't much of an early riser. You know, as the restaurant group has grown and my responsibilities are typically on a daily basis in the restaurant, you know, certainly not late at night. Um, you know, I, I tend to go to bed, bed much earlier than I did, you know, 30 years ago. Sure. So I'm up early and it's, um, depending on where I am, it's, you know, it's, it's often, you know, the stereotypical jump on the Peloton first thing in the morning, or it could be, you know, a long walk or it's, you know, hitting the, uh, the internet or, you know, all our sales are downloaded on a on a server. So, you know, first thing I do is probably looking at how last night went or how yesterday went. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a little email correspondence, some exercise, coffee, and then get on with the day. You have quite a bit of responsibility. You've got, in fact, you've got a, a lot going on because you have multiple locations. How do you keep centered or balanced? You mentioned the Peloton, but is there anything else you do? Do you, do you meditate? Are you, um, you know, do you, how do you disconnect? Tequila. <laughs> <laughs> no, how do I disconnect? You know, I, I don't know if I have a, um, probably my biggest hobby, you know, is, is golf, but you know, I have a family I'm very involved with and, you know, I love what I do. So, you know, your work is not your, you know, when you love what you do, your work is your, is somewhat your hobby also. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I don't want to disconnect too much though, you know, but things like golf and family and traveling, which, you know, no one's done a lot of in the last 12 months, if any, but yeah, no, med- no meditation. I'm not, I'm not that deep. Okay. And as a leader uh, of your organization, what would you say is your greatest challenge? Well, the, the biggest challenge in our business right now, which is, you know, maybe true of other businesses, is, is the whole person, the personnel side, mm. you know, putting the, the best people we can in, in as many positions as possible is always our biggest challenge. And, um, you know, it's, and it's a constant challenge. So, um, you know, our organization is different than most, um, from day one, what, one of the things that I think has made us very successful is that we've treated every single restaurant as if it was our first. You know, the commitment that we put in in 1986 to opening Max on Main, you know, that was a total labor of love, and we created something brand new, and we spent months or even, you know, years getting to the point where we served our, before we served our first, you know, glass of Prosecco or martini and our first dessert. Mm-hmm. So when we opened our second restaurant, which was Maximia, 
we 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 treated exactly the way we treated the first one, and it took you know it took a year to get there, and it you know between the construction and the or the design, the construction, the menu, the the personnel, you know you have to find the right people to execute um, your vision. So as we've grown, that vision is shared by you know not only me but my partners. And, and what's made our company unique and I think successful is our culture. And our culture is really that every restaurant has a, a managing partner that runs that particular restaurant. And, you know, we try to keep them in their box. You know, the, the, you know, Maximia, for example, you know, we, we like to stay true to the Italian culture mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, it's not necessarily typical Italian, but it's, you know, we don't typically do Asian dishes there or we won't do things that are more Americana. You know, we stick to, you know, the Italian philosophy of food and Italian ingredients. So each restaurant has its leader, you know, so I work with, you know, a lot of the people in the restaurant, but I work mostly with the the general manager and the chef of each restaurant. And we give them as much you know, try to give them enough latitude to carry out our vision, which is to hopefully their vision. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it sounds like you, you, you don't get complacent. Right. And the other thing is, it goes back to one of the old sayings, you know, surround yourself with, with great people. And that makes your job as a leader almost easier. Right. Yeah. That's, and that's, you know, each of our restaurants though, there's, you know, there's a theme that hopefully runs through it. And one of them is, you know, the hospitality side. You know, from day one, we've worked on, uh, you know, our, our guests are, are, are our future. Mm-hmm. You know, if our, you know, we, we always try to look at, you know, when people dine in our restaurants or how it's more take or not more takeout, but a lot of it's takeout. You know, it's very important to us that whatever experience they have, we're trying to guarantee that they're going to want to have that experience with us again. So we like to look at it, you know, if things aren't going right for whatever reason, what do we have to do to make them happy about the way it went? So it's, you know, we, we try to, you know, give our, our, certainly our managers, but also our servers and bartenders enough, enough uh, leeway to fix the problems and to treat each guest as their guest. And, you know, we, we try to think of it as a, um, you know, we're entertaining every night. We're having a dinner party and treat treat our customers as guests and make them want to come back as guests. Excellent. Success is easy to talk about, um, but failure is, is is often harder to talk about because I think as a society, we're, we're afraid of the F word. Do you have a favorite failure of yours? And by what I mean by that is that nobody likes to fail, but um, is there something you thought you were so sure about it didn't work out you failed, but you learned from it. And, and what was that? There's probably so many of them, but for some reason, nothing's nothing's really coming to mind. But, you know, it goes a little bit back to what we were talking about before. You know, we, we, we've made a lot of little mistakes and we've not made, um, I can't think of any major mistakes we've made. You know, obviously we've made business decisions that are wrong, you know, the wrong software or the wrong, you know, point of sale system. Uh, we've been lucky. We haven't made any location mistakes. Um, you know, we've made many mistakes hiring the wrong people. And, um, 
but we've had many more successes with the right with the right people. Mm. And you know, we we really learn quickly. You know, when someone doesn't feel our culture, if they don't, you know, if they don't, you know, we don't feel. You know, we like to look as our restaurant. Um, my partner Steve Abrams is one of my longest friends, oldest friends, who runs Max Downtown and is involved with all the restaurants. Um, he likes to refer to us, us as a restaurant instead of a restaurant because our job is to say yes to people. With that said, I, you know, if you had to paraphrase it, like, what's your secret? I mean, you, you know, it, it's not luck. I mean, there's there's got to be a little bit of some kind of a secret sauce you have. You know, I don't, I don't think we have a secret. You know, I'd like, I'd like to tell you we had one. And if I had one, Derek, you can be sure I wouldn't tell you, but, um, <laughs> that would defeat the purpose. You know, you can't give away your secrets, right? but you know, our secrets, I think are simple. It kind of goes back to the, you know, you know, we like to treat our employees well because our employees will treat our, our, our guests well. But, you know, we try to keep it simple. And I think the main thing I, I, I kind of hinted towards it is that we, we treat each restaurant like it's our first. And, you know, we try to treat each guest like it's our first guest also. You know, as soon as um, you're just another customer, you know, we, we lose our, our edge. You know, your best day of business is your first day because that's when you have your highest level of excitement and enthusiasm for what you're doing. And, you know, it's impossible to keep it, you know, just like a, like, a, you know, when someone goes on their first date, you know, there's a certain, you know, you know, there's something in the air when you fall in love with your, your wife or your husband or whatever it might be. And, you know, a restaurant has to take that philosophy, you know, every night can't be the first time you dine at, you know, Max downtown, but like a great relationship. You know, we, we want to have a relationship with our guests and that relationship is to, to, you know, to keep it going like a great marriage. And we both have to, you know, to be successful, both of us have to participate. And, you know, one of the things we always ask our guests is if you're not happy, you have to tell us, you know, if you don't like uh, the preparation of the, the fish or you don't like the quality of the way it was prepared, you know, the fish is overcooked. We don't want you going on Yelp and saying it. We want you to tell us. And not that we don't care about Yelp. I mean, we take Yelp reviews and any of the reviews out there on the on social media seriously. But the thing we care most about is how you like it. And if you don't like it, we want to make it. We want to make it as you know. We want we want to look at as an opportunity. Look at that as an opportunity to fix it. We want to fix it right then. And uh, we can't always fix it right then. You know, the, the, sometimes the evening's been spoiled because, you know, they ordered, they ordered lamb chops and they like a medium rare and they were medium well by accident. You know, it's, it's hard to, um, to fix that. I mean, we can fix it, but there's a delay. You know, there's, you know they, they, we need 10, 15, 20 minutes to fix it properly. And that, and that you know, that has an impact on your evening. So, but we still want to know, we want to fix, you know, you know, we make a, you know, we serve thousands and thousands of meals a week and we'd be liars if to say, if we were to tell you, we could cook every one of them perfectly every time. But when we do make our mistakes, we want to do our best to fix them. We, we win the most people by having a great experience without any 
hiccups. But when we do have the hiccup or the, uh, the mistake, it's how we fix it. Here we are in 2021. We're in the worst pandemic of our lifetimes that's literally turned the, the entire world upside down, especially the restaurant business, the hospitality business, so on. Take us through your thoughts when this all happened. How, how did you adjust or pivot? Well, you know, it was, um, how do we pivot? You know, I think the Max Group, and I would say all of our friendly competitors, you know, Billy Grant and, you know, Dorian and, you know, these, all our friends are in the business. I would say all of us, and we're, I don't think we're alone, did an amazing job of pivoting. And we were, you know, I think we were very agile. We were very uh, fluid in coming up with different ways to create. I mean, there was, there was two goals. Like when it first started, you know, one of our goals was to help feed people in who were, you know, the first respond, not first responders, but, you know, the frontline workers at hospitals and things like that. So we, we kind of kept busy a little bit, you know, bringing food to hospitals, things like that, getting the, you know, the doctors, the nurses, the, all the people that are, you know, were working crazy hours and risking their own lives to uh, serve people or to help people. So that was like kind of day one. And that was, um, I think, you know, we did it for the people and I think we did it for ourselves a little bit. Mm. You know, we kind of needed to, feel good about something you know it was it was I mean, this whole thing was a little bit of a shock you know to have uh governor lamont say you know you have to close your restaurants and, and i'm not criticizing the decision at all it was it was probably the right decisions but like you said there's something like we've never seen you know it's like this is like wartime this is crisis this is you know it's not the snowstorm that you know would you know unravel us because you know we couldn't be open that evening it was you know i don't remember how long it was now but we were closed total business for a couple of weeks and then it became a takeout oriented business mm-hmm. and my you know my partners and my key employees were really phenomenal and like i said our competitors were just as good as we were we, you know we created new niches you know the takeout niche was something we've done in all our restaurants in a small level, you know, Savoy burger and maybe Maximia always did a little more takeout than certainly the oyster bar and max downtown places like that. So what was maybe 5% of our business for a little while was a hundred percent of our business. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we learned, we had to learn a whole new business, you know, it's a different pace. When you do takeout, in a restaurant like Oyster Bar or any of them, you know, especially it was, you know, things were dark last winter during, you know, this whole pandemic was, it was a dark time for everybody, you know, emotionally, physically, you know, it was like war, it was wartime, I guess. So our, our people really did a great job of creating different, different themes for takeout, different strategies to handle the volume. Mm-hmm. Create, first of all, creating a volume and then being able to handle a volume. You know, it's a different pace doing takeout than it is doing, um, you know, dining in the restaurant. Dining in the restaurant, we kind of, we plan it out, you know, a certain amount of tables at 5, a certain amount of tables at 5.30, you know, through the evening. 
takeout, everybody eats at the same time. Everyone's right. doing takeout between 5.30 and 7 or something like that. And they want it now, right? They want it quick. They want it now and they want, you know, for some, you know, and then you have the third party delivery companies, you know, your um, DoorDash and Uber Eats, et cetera, who are, when you use those third party, you're making a little bit of a deal with the, you know, packed with the devil. Right. <laughs> you, you, you know, you need them. You don't want them because they're taking a percentage of your revenue, but it's revenue that you wouldn't have had. But you can't control the drivers. You, can, you don't control any of it. You know, it's hard enough to control your own team, but now you're dealing with a third party that you have zero control of. And they don't have the same hospitality skills or the same desire to have this hospitality skills as our, our frontline restaurant people do have. Right. So there's all kinds of challenges with that. But, you know, I think our people did a phenomenal job and I have to give 90% of it to, you know, the, you know, the, my partners and the chefs who, you know, just wanted to do things right. And, uh, you know, it was, we've been, you know, we've survived it and we're going to survive it. And I think, I think most of the restaurants are going to survive it. You know, they talk about 30% of the restaurants won't reopen. I, I don't see it, you know, um, the, the stimulus packages, the PPP mm-hmm. um, programs, you know, we're, we're all, most of us are going to get through this. The reopening is slowly happening, right? State restrictions have lifted a little bit. There's a little more leeway with that. Um, are you, are you seeing people coming out and, and if, you know, in larger numbers and how, you know, what are you doing to make guests feel comfortable or give them confidence? Well, we've done a lot of things with that. And, you know, the, the main thing is that, your capacity was, you know, our occupancy is basically 50% of what it used to be. Okay. And then our window to do it is, is smaller. You know, you have a lot of people that even though, you know, there's less people in the restaurant, you know, the summer was, was actually very exciting. You know, the, the streets became cafes and outdoor dining. So the summer was actually very good. And as the cold, you know, as winter came, you know, fall slash winter came, you know, it became only indoor dining and takeout. And, you know, with the right um, dividers, you know, with plexiglass or real glass in some cases, um, six feet separations, um, you know, cleanliness practices, um, face masks, etc. There's a certain clientele that would come out during this time. And there are some that just wouldn't even consider it. And, Every day we'd see people or talk to people that say, I haven't eaten out and I'm not going to eat out. Or, in, you know, I just want to say out, meaning inside. Right. And the good news is there wasn't, there was enough demand to keep us going. And it's getting, it's slowly getting a little better. You know, there's, as, as more of the uh, older people got vaccinated, you know, they started to come out a little more. And, you know, so we're seeing it, you know, it's, it's slowly building. And we think by, um, you know, when the outdoor dining starts in the spring and there's more people who've gotten the vaccine, the second shot or whatever it might be, you know, we're anticipating a, a pretty good summer. Um, you know, fall will, you know, when we get to fall, I think everyone who wants to be vaccinated will be. And, um, but I think there's still, certainly still a level of we need to be careful. Yeah, for sure. And, um, you know, I've had COVID myself. 
Um, I was lucky to have a, a very minor case, but I, um, you know, I'm still careful. Um, but I'm willing to eat inside, and I'm comfortable eating inside in the right environment. Right. And the Max restaurants, um, I feel very comfortable eating in them. And there's other restaurants that I, I feel comfortable in. But some people are not ready for that, and they'll when they are ready, they'll join us. And that's that's a good thing. And uh, you know, was gonna, I'm going to ask going forward when we are back to normal. How do you see restaurants changing for the future? And what I mean by that is, are there things from this pandemic and terrible time we're in that will carry forward and, and be a part of restaurants? Or do we just go back to complete normal? You know, Derek, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I think it really depends how you know this vaccine works. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think we know it works or we at least believe it works. And I think that uh, my guess is that people are not going to want to be in crowded environments for a while. You know, they will be around people. You know, I've been, like I told you earlier, I've been in Florida a lot of this period. And we have a huge outdoor dining scenario in our, the restaurant, the Cooper, which is our restaurant. And, um, you know, people that come from up north, which is this time of year is quite a bit, you know, they come to the Cooper and they go, Holy cow! This I haven't seen people out like this in a year. Now, in general, they're well spread out. You know, when they're when they're eating, they're obviously not wearing masks. But when they come and go, they're they're putting masks on. And um, you know, Florida has no regulations as far as occupancy. But the our indoor dining is pretty much fifty percent or so because we think that's what people want, and that's. A responsible way of doing it, mm-hmm. and the outdoor dining we've just we keep increasing, and on on the right night, which is most nights, some of our tables from the inside are actually brought outside. So we'll see that in the summer, I think, in Connecticut again, and I think by fall people will start to get a little more comfortable being around people and, um, you know, dining next to people. But I think the separation they're going to like, you know, the plexiglass. Or, or the distance. And I think that people are going to, um, you know, they're, they're going to grow into it. But I think it's going to be a little different. Mm-hmm. And one of the things for us that, you know, like in our Hartford restaurants is you know, there's certain elements that we're not sure when it will return. You know, when our sporting events going to return to the Civic Center. You know, when are the theaters going to be busy again? Right. And... When is there going to be, you know, entertain business entertaining and business travel? You know, Hartford, our weekday, our weeknight business in Hartford was always very brisk because of uh, out-of-town business people. Mm-hmm. And interesting enough, our weekend business downtown right now is pretty good. But the weeknights, because we don't have the out-of-town travelers in the hotels or, you know, doing business with the either the big insurance or financial institutions, you know, it's hard to say when it will come, but we'll be plugging along until it does. It hasn't been easy. So Rich Rosenthal, the person, how are, how have you been building resilience during these times? You know, I'm a, I'm a half, I'm a half empty. Well, I guess it's half full. I'm a half full guy. Yep. You know, it's kind of what we do. You know, we, we get, you know, um, 
we have our challenges. We, you know, we, we get thoughtful and we figure out what's the best way to do it. Um, you know, someone asked me the other day, you know, with 50% occupancy, can you make money? And I go, hell no. We're not even close to making money. Our goal is not to lose money. You know, we've always, you know, for the last 35 years in the restaurant business, our goal is to, I mean, our goal is to serve great food and do it in a hospitable and a, in a, in a quality way. Well, you know, in all honesty, we're in the business to make money. This, this is our livelihood. Mm-hmm. And um, how we get there is by return guests and doing, you know, giving experiences that want, that people want to dine with us. But, you know, so we're, we're, we just continue to do that. And if it's takeout or special box meals that we've done, we keep doing that. But it's, it's, it'll, it's coming back and it'll come back when it's time. And we're not going to push it before it's time. So there's uh, an expression um, that I was traveling in France several years ago visiting wineries. And this wonderful winemaker in Burgundy said to me, you were talking about vintages. And he says, you know, Richard, he goes, anyone can make good wine in good years. Mm. And that's our challenge today is to make, you know, we know we can be busy when everything's perfect. But we need to be, you know, good at what we do during this pandemic. And, you know, I think we all see the light at the end of the tunnel. If you could give your 25-year-old self some advice, knowing what you know now and all of the experience you have, what, what would you say to 25-year-old Rich? Don't go in the restaurant business. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, you know, the, what's that, uh, you know, the, I don't remember who said it, but baseball's been very, very good to me. Yeah, the restaurant business has been good. Has been very good to me, and it's been good to many people that work, you know, side by side with me. And but the 25 year old me, you know, and I've and I've, I've had the pleasure of having, you know, people will call me and say, "Hey, my kid is getting out of college, and he doesn't really want know what to do, and he he thinks he wants to go in the restaurant business." And they ask, "Well, you know, will you talk to him or her?" So. I'll sit with that person, you know, it could be on the phone or it could be in person. And I started asking him some questions like what, why restaurant business? They go, well, you know, it looks good. It da, 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 you know, some, some ridiculous answer. I, and I'll ask them, do you love food? Do you love wine? Do you love, you know, all this stuff? And I'll get kind of, you know, you get different answers from different people, of course. Mm-hmm. But my advice is you, you have to do what you love. You know, your work has got to be your hobby, you know, and you got to find something that you really like. And if, if you're going to the restaurant business because you think it's a good business, it's the worst business in the world. You know, it's a, it's a seven day, seven night business. And it's, you know, I've compared it. It's different than most businesses because you are, you are a manufacturer and a retailer at the same time, which isn't very common. You know, if you want to go buy a beautiful sweater, you, you, you rarely buy it from the person that produces it. You buy it from someone who purchases it and puts it in their, you know, in their store mm-hmm. or today on, online. But it's typically not the person that knit that sweater. And in the restaurant business, we buy raw ingredients. You know, we go to the farm, we go to the, our wholesalers, and we need to produce food 
And now we have to serve it. And we have to serve it timely and we have to serve it hot and all those things. So it's a, it's a tough business. You know, it, it kind of never ends. When most people go home at five or six o'clock from work, we're just starting our second day. We, did it, we already did the first eight hours at lunch. Now we're doing the second eight hours in the evening. So it's, you got to find something you really love. So if I was talking to the 25-year-old young man or young woman, I'd say, just find something you love and do it. And don't listen to everyone that tells you it's a bad idea. Perfect advice. And what's your favorite restaurant in the whole world? If you could go back or recommend one for someone who's traveling when the, when, when the world opens up again, what's the one place you, you love? Oh, wow. That's, that's a tough one. Um, you know, in New York, there's a couple of restaurants. Uh, there's a lot of great restaurants. But probably my favorite restaurant in New York, which I've only eaten once, I think, is uh, Jean George, and the food is, you know, it's it's a work of art, but it's but it's still food, you know. It hasn't gotten, you know, he doesn't, you know, it's not a science project, and it's not a, you know, it's not his, um, it's not about him, it's you know, it's about the guest, mm. it's about the food. But there's so many wonderful restaurants in every city, and you know. You know, I love a place like John George, and I and I love a place in, you know, in Scars, not Scarsdale's. Um, where is it? Mamaroneck. This place, Walters, that has great hot dogs. Mm. So you you, know, you just got to find. Um, so there's a lot of places I look forward to returning to for sure. But what I really look forward to is is traveling. You know, um, you know, it's you know traveling to Europe or traveling to New York City. You know, I've been in New York in a well over a year. You know, and that's a heartbeat of the restaurant world. Yep, for sure. Yeah, I'm the same way. I can't wait to get back down to the city or, you know, my last last trip overseas was to Italy and I'm, I'm dying to go back. So, <laughs> yeah. So, um, my you know, the, my favorite restaurant is the restaurant I'm eating in right now and enjoying. <laughs> right, exactly. So a- any final words? For, for the folks listening out there? You know, um, I just I, I just want to thank all the people that have dined out. You know, they've, you know, there's a lot of people that um, have made real efforts to buy gift cards from restaurants that needed help. Uh, they've done a lot of takeout meals, you know, um, and, you know, let's, we can all be honest, you know, no one, some people are terrific at supporting places, but they're really doing it because they want that meal. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, so, but we do thank all the people that have been out there that have really supported restaurants. And, and I think they've been understanding. And that's, that's probably, you know, doing takeout meals is, you know, we all know, you know, we do our best to make it as, as close to a dining experience in a restaurant, but it's impossible. You know, when we box up a salmon or a steak or a, a pasta, you know, there's nothing like a pasta coming out of a, a saute pan, hitting the bowl, and getting to the table in, you know, 12 seconds. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't compare that to a takeout meal ever. But, you know, the, our guests have been very supportive and they've, they've, you know, they get tired of cooking, so they're supportive. But we appreciate the support and they've been pretty, I would say they've been pretty damn good at giving us a break when it's not as hot as they want it to be. Because <laughs> it never is. <laughs> 
Well, listen, thank you so much, Richard, for joining us. This has been a great conversation. And and if people want to follow you um, and the Max Restaurant Group, where can they find you? Is it your website, uh, maxrestaurantgroup.com? And, and how about out on, on social media? You're in all the... We're all over. You know, it's funny. I'm not on social media. I shouldn't say I'm not on it. I look at it. Yep. I don't post ever just because I... Uh, I'm not funny enough, I guess, but, um, you know, all our restaurants are on Instagram and Facebook and et cetera. And, uh, you know, whatever restaurant it is, just go on Instagram and put in Savoy or Max Downtown and follow us. You know, they give you little hints on uh, what we're doing. And uh, it's a good way to know about specials or things that are seasonal that are happening or just special events. And come to our, uh, come to our farm dinners when it gets warm. You know, the people that don't want to eat inside, you know, we did them all last summer. Um, up to 100 people was allowed last summer. And out in Rosedale, we had our farm dinners, and those those were great. We, had, we saw so many of our friends at the farm dinners that said, geez, we haven't eaten out in months. This is such a treat. And, you know, the, the, the fresh air of the farm and the open air was great. Well, listen, thank you so much, Richard. I appreciate it. Thank you. It was a pleasure uh, chatting with you. There we go. That's Richard Rosenthal, the founder and president of Max Restaurant Group. Thank you so much for listening to the show. I hope you enjoyed this episode. To find out more information on all of the Max restaurants, their events, new menus, and so on, visit maxrestaurantgroup.com. And be sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. That way you don't miss a single episode. Upfront is brought to you by Mason, an integrated brand communications firm located in Southern Connecticut that provides communications ingenuity through advertising, public relations, social media, digital, and media services. To learn more, visit mason23.com or get in touch by sending an email to hello at mason23.com. And last but not least, you can stop by and say hello to me. You can find me on Twitter and LinkedIn at Derek Beer. This episode was produced, engineered, researched, and designed with help from Jackie Lightsey, Eliza Gladwin, Neil Johnson, and TJ Tower. Well, that does it for this one. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you again next month. Take care. Take care.